Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer and broadcaster. And back in 1998, I wrote and presented on RTU Radio 1 my first major documentary series called The Years Go Pop. A title with its pun on the ears go pop I hated. And that was imposed on me. Either way, I set out to give in a series of one-hour shows that would run for about 26 weeks my own particular, some might say peculiar, view of the history of popular culture from 1945 to 1989. I definitely didn't want to tell a traditional history of rock or pop, if only because no matter how much I'd always loved such shows, most, if not all, took a musicological tilt on the tale, whereas I was more interested in pop culture as a socio-political phenomenon. Sounds heady, I know, but I set out my case at the start in a half-page article in the Irish Times, and at the start of the first programme, when I pointed out that in the series I'd play not just those singles or albums that put the art into pop art, but the songs that help change the way we see ourselves, the way we dress, the way we dream, engage in sexual politics, fall in love. In other words, the way we live. And I said that even though most rock histories start in 1956, I tended to side with the view of social commentators who suggested that year zero was 1945, when the dropping of the A-bomb made the Earth and cosmos start to rock. Now I've decided to make available as podcasts abbreviated versions of that series, including only tiny sections of songs. And given that I myself own the copyright of this series, I can finally ditch its original title. Incidentally, a few years after I did this series, RTE began to broadcast a similar TV series called reeling in the years, and for a moment I thought, maybe I'll steal that title, seeing as though they probably stole the original concept from many sources, including me. I'm kidding. Then I thought, maybe I'll call it Rolling Back the Years. But then I remembered that's a crappy song by Simply Red. So instead, it's now called Boom. Joe Jackson's History of Pop Culture. The unedited shows are available at mixcloud.com and you can read about the series on my own website joejacksoninterviewer.com Radio Erin reports that the unconditional surrender of the German forces to Britain, America and Russia was signed early this morning have been followed by the London announcement that Mr Churchill is to broadcast tomorrow afternoon under an arrangement between the three great powers. Allowances can be made for Mr Churchill's statement however unworthy in the first flush of his victory. The Emperor said that the Allies had begun to employ a new and most cruel bomb, the power of which to do damage was indeed incalculable. It took toll of many innocent lives, and should they continue to fight, it would not only result in the ultimate collapse and obliteration of the Japanese nation, but also it would lead to the total extinction of human civilization. Ten seconds. All of the observer ships are in position in the open sea. We're about ten miles away. I Five see seconds. The target. Four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Years Go Pop, where we look back at some of the most popular and influential recordings from the past 50 years. 
Not just those singles or albums that put the art into pop art, but the songs that help change the way we see ourselves, the way we dress, dream, engage in sexual politics, fall in love. In other words, the way we live. And since 1956, we've been living in the rock era, which usually is the point at which most pop histories begin, but not this one. I side with those who say 1945 was year zero, the moment the earth really began to uh, rock when man created the atom bomb. That's when everything changed. Not only did the dropping of those bombs on Japan end the Second World War, it also hauled us into the atomic age, unleashing a force which for the first time had the power to destroy the planet. As such, it was a pretty weird year for a tune entitled Accentuate the Positive to top the charts, right? But it did. Incidentally, Bing Crosby's vocal inflections here highlight how much he was influenced by black vocalists like Louis Armstrong. Yeah, long before black music is supposed to have first coupled with white music and created rock and roll. This too is where it all started. Got to accentuate the positive feeling. Mind it to negative, latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Bing Crosby's Accentuate the Positive. Yet despite his popularity in the late 40s, Crosby had lost his crown as King of the Crooners to a certain Mr. Sinatra. Then again, Frankie wasn't really a crooner. He was more of a method singer, a man who invested into his music the kind of emotional depth that too often was absent from the work of pre-war crooners like Crosby. But then Frankie was more influenced along these lines by black jazz vocalist Billie Holiday, who, it's said, used to absorb a song so deeply into her own psyche that when it resurfaced, it was remade in her own image. Neat trick, that. In one of his recordings from 1945, Sinatra does exactly the same thing, managing to sing from not only his own immigrant soul, but also the soul of every person who ever felt homesick. That's all. I miss the thrill of grammar school romances. I miss the junior prom and graduation dances. The gossip in assembly hall. I'm homesick. That's all. Sinatra's homesick, that's all. Sentimental with some hokey lyrics for sure, but that kind of wartime sentimentality is in direct contrast with the post-war disillusionment captured by Pete Seeger in his song, Looking for a Home. Social realism would soon creep into theatre, literature, the visual arts and movies, but here it is, rising from the world of folk music as far back as 1945. Five long years in the army, it never was a home. Take me back to my hometown and never more I'll roam. I'm a looking for a home. 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 This is Piccadilly Circus, that rather small open space in the center of London where in peacetime the traffic used to go round and round and then spill out into five separate streets. But believe me, tonight there is no traffic in Piccadilly Circus. I can remember this place when it was completely empty and you could read a newspaper by the light of the flares dropped by German bombers. There was a time when our bomber boys said that you could walk on the flax when you were flying over the Ruhr, and tonight you could walk on the heads of people all the way across Piccadilly Circus. Edward Orr Murrow, the doyen of American war reporting, telling us how easy it would be to walk over the heads of people in Piccadilly Circus on Victory in Europe Day. 
But back here in Ireland, President Dee Valera, as Winston Churchill called him, delivered a wonderful repast to the same gentleman, Churchill, who in his victory speech tried to stomp all over the stance of neutrality taken by the Irish government. Owing to the action of Mr. Dee Valera, so much at variance with the temper and instinct of thousands of southern Irishmen who hastened to the battlefront to prove their ancient valour, the approaches which the southern Irish ports and airfields could so easily have guarded were closed by the hostile aircraft and U-boats. Uh, this was indeed a deadly moment in our life. And if it had not been for the loyalty and friendship of Northern Ireland, we should have come to, we should have been forced to come to close quarters with Mr. de Valera or perish forever from the earth. Allowances can be made for Mr. Churchill's statement, however unworthy, in the first flush of his victory. No such excuse can be found for me in this quiet atmosphere. There are, however, some things which it is my duty to say, some things which it is essential to say. I shall try to say them as dispassionately as I can. Mr. Churchill makes it clear that in certain circumstances he would have violated our neutrality and that he would justify his action by Britain's necessity. It seems strange to me that Mr. Churchill does not see that this, if accepted, would mean that Britain's necessity would become a model code. And that when this necessity was sufficiently great, other people's rights were not to count. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. This Land is Your Land by Woody Guthrie. Interestingly, Woody wrote two verses that never made it onto that recording, but proved the tune at least started its life as a left-wing protest song. One verse goes, One bright sunny morning in the shadow of the steeple, By the relief office I saw my people. As they stood hungry, I stood wondering if God blessed America for me. The latter was a nice little dig at Irving Berlin's God Bless America, which many Americans regarded as a second national anthem. Either way, Guthrie's song certainly sums up his expressed desire to raise people's spirits or, if you like, accentuate the positive. I hate a song that makes you feel you are not any good. I hate a song that makes you feel you are born to lose. I am out to fight those songs to my very last breath. I am out to sing songs that will prove to you that this is your world, no matter how hard it's run over you or knocked you down, he once said. Amen to that. Here's another song which raised people's spirits after the war ended, simply by making them dance. Mopping up soda pop rickies To our hearts delight Dancing to swing a root quickies Jukebox Saturday night Glenn Miller with the 1945 hit Jukebox Saturday Night. But we can't revisit that year, or indeed any year in the 40s, and leave in only the joked reference to the ink spots you heard in that song. After all, the ink spots were one of the top vocal groups of the time, and would later become a huge influence on doo-wop in the 50s, and even on Elvis. Here they're joined by another L, Ella Fitzgerald, who influenced a million singers, at least. I never cared much for moonlit skies 
I never winked back at fireflies. But now that the stars are in your eyes, I'm beginning to see the light. The Ink Spot singing, I'm beginning to see the light, which is a title that must have been really popular with those soldiers who weren't even given dark glasses to protect their eyes during the world's first atomic tests. And no, the light they saw in the desert wasn't God. If anything, it was the opposite. Come to think of it earlier, I mentioned Woody Guthrie's dig at the song God Bless America. But maybe as a socialist, he also has taken a swipe at the very concept of God, which some commentators claim was finally atomized with the dropping of the world's first nuclear bombs. I'm not so sure about that. But if God didn't die during the second half of this century, he definitely can be heard taking a last gasping breath in this recording of a priest blessing the Enola Gay aircraft as it goes off to drop the bomb which will soon vaporise 80,000 people in the name of, as he says, Jesus Christ. May the men who fly this night be kept safe in thy care and may they be returned safely to us. We shall go forward trusting in thee knowing that we are in thy care now and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. We won the race of discovery against the Germans. We have used it in order to shorten the agony of war, in order to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young Americans. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan's power to make war. The explosion was a big ball of fire. Anyone not having dark glasses would have received a visual shock several miles away. One of the crew members said, my God, when he saw what had happened. What had been Hiroshima was a white mountain of smoke, and when we saw it first, it was already up to 25,000 feet. About 1,000 feet off the ground, it looked like boiling dust. It extended over most of the city, churning down there, and the center of the impact was in the center of the city, and the boiling continued several minutes as we watched. Then the mushroom of smoke broke off, and another developed below it. This one bomb is the equivalent of a 2000 B-29 raid. Grab your coat, don't forget your hat, but leave your worries, leave them on the doorstep, fly sweet. Just direct your feet to the sun, sunny side of the street. Tommy Dorsey's On the Sunny Side of the Street, another title that seems somewhat ironic when you think of those reports of atomic explosions that were brighter than the sun. And no, that song probably wasn't too popular in places like Hiroshima. Even so, the Second World War did finally end in September 1945, the same month that Ireland lost Count John McCormack, a singer who probably epitomised the whole pre-war period in this country. Around the time of his death, one of the most popular songs was another of those anthems that must have hit a spot deep in the heart of anyone returning home after the war, or yearning to return to any form of home. Sentimental Journey, with a vocal by Doris Day, who once said she sings as if whispering into the ear of her lover. All aboard. Gonna take a sentimental journey Gonna set my heart at ease Gonna make 
a sentimental journey to renew Sentimental Journey from 1945. So what else was happening in Ireland at the time? Well, protests continued against symbols of British rule with the statue of Colonel Gough having its head cut off in the Phoenix Park. No doubt many people felt like doing something similar to Dev after he called on the German minister to express his condolences at the death of Hitler. Future Taoiseach Charles J. Hawhey, on the other hand, was one of a group of students who marked VE Day by burning a Union Jack outside the gates of Trinity College in Dublin. A few months later, future President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, was scuttling around the same streets. And what might they have heard playing on the wireless at the time? Nat King Cole? Maybe. But not on Radio Erin, which banned jazz records describing them as the devil's music, obviously taking their cue from either Lord Reith, head of the BBC, the Catholic Church or the Irish government. In fact, during one legendary Leinster House debate, Bing Crosby was described as a decadent crooner. Crosby? Decadent? As for Nat, Lord knows what our political leaders thought of him. After all, he was black. I'm through with love. I'll never fall again. Said I do to love. Don't ever call again. For I must have you or no one. Because I'm through with love. I'm Through With Love by Nat King Cole. Later, Nat would get a lot of flack from black radicals for what they saw as his trying too hard to sing like white singers such as Sinatra. But in the days before rock and roll, blacks had to tone down their own form of cultural expression in order to get airplay. The more true they were to themselves in music such as jazz or blues, the more likely they were to be banned. And not just by RTE or the BBC, but also by mainstream American radio. All of this led to the kind of cultural rip-off known as cover versions, whereby white artists would cover songs originally recorded by blacks, take all the credit and all the cash and run. But even back in the 1940s, some black artists rose above this process. Woody Herman may have covered the following tune, but the version that has survived and which is recognised as having directly influenced the formation of rock and roll is the original by Louis Jordan. Walking with my baby, she got great big feet. She long, lean, and lank, and ain't had nothing to eat. But she's my baby, and I love her just the same. Crazy about that woman, cause Caledonia is her name. Caledonia by Louis Jordan. But one of the best bands of the 40s, if not this century, was the ensemble led by Duke Ellington. Let's face it, Duke is one of America's greatest composers even if he isn't often recognised as such, again, probably because he was black. And even though Duke may not have had major hits in 1945, he sure was one of those artists putting the art into pop and paving a path towards not just rhythm and blues and rock and roll, but also avant-garde jazz. Here we have Ellington's band burning full tilt on a song with a title that sums up the whole post-war period. Things ain't what they used to be. Great Duke Ellington, things ain't what they used to be. 
So, okay, if after the war things weren't what they used to be, how exactly were they changing? Well, in the world of the visual arts, Jackson Pollock ushered in the age of abstract expressionism and action painting. That phrase Bob Dylan apparently still likes to apply to his music. Plays like Home of the Brave by Arthur Lawrence also hold theatre into a new era, addressing subjects such as anti-Semitism, while movies too dared to focus on previously taboo subjects like alcoholism in The Lost Weekend and the secret sexual frustrations of the British middle class in Brief Encounter. Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound, meanwhile, was riddled with the kind of references to Freud and the world of psychoanalysis, which would dominate Hollywood movies during the following decade. And new books included The Age of Reason by Sarch, Animal Farm by George Orwell, and Canary Row by John Steinbeck. On a broader cultural level, the world was about to enter the television age, and radio was about to be revolutionised with the introduction of magnetic tape recorders. Coca-Cola registered the label Coke as a trademark, the first ballpoint pens went on sale, and Conrad Hilton opened his first hotel. But for our soundbite, we're going back to the world of theatre and the debut of Tennessee Williams, who was about to unleash a brace of plays that were, he said, his own personal attack against the monolith of Puritanism. Here he talks about the Glass Menagerie, which opened on Broadway in 1945. I have tricks in my pocket. I have things up my sleeve. But I am the opposite of a stage magician. He gives you illusion that has the appearance of truth. I give you truth in the pleasant disguise of illusion. The play is memory. Being a memory play, it is dimly lighted. It is sentimental. It is not realistic. In memory, everything seems to happen to music. That explains the fiddle in the wings. In memory, everything seems to happen to music, says Tennessee Williams. I sure hope he's right. And the biggest changes in popular music in 1945 took place in the world of jazz. More to the point, bebop, a form of cutting-edge music that really hit its stride that year in recordings such as Dizzy Atmosphere by Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. This is like the polar opposite of a lot of the middle-of-the-road mush being created by many white band leaders at the time. And that was a political gesture on behalf of blacks like Gillespie, who finally decided to retaliate against what they saw as the bastardization of their music by dragging jazz back to its African-American roots. Often they'd even play licks as if to say to their white peers, follow this honky. Not surprisingly, it was at this point that jazz began to be more of a music for musicians rather than for the general public. That particular development even hastened the death of the big bands, who began to play more for or with themselves on stage and ignore the needs of dancers, which of course opened up another door to rock and roll, a music that brought dancing back into fashion. Even so, with recordings like Dizzy Atmosphere, black musicians moved into the age of postmodernism before the era proper even began. <laughs> Dizzy Gillespie and the Charlie Parker sextet, deconstructing rhythm and pushing jazz into the second half of the 20th century. In 1945, mainstream popular music also took its first tentative steps into a new era when Frank Sinatra recorded the first concept album in pop entitled The Voice. It wasn't released until early the following year. It may have been a package of 478s, but the songs were conceptually linked by tone, theme and instrumentation, which means that our Frankie was initiating the idea that pop songs are meant to be listened to rather than used simply as a background for dancing or romancing. 
In other words, Sinatra was raising pop to a level that had previously been preserved for classical music, the form of music for which the long-playing album would soon be created. In future programmes, we'll look more closely at Sinatra's role in the creation of the concept album. But to end this show, while I have absolutely no legitimate reason for playing this 1945 recording, other than the fact that it will take us out on the kind of positive note that would probably please Bing Crosby, Woody Guthrie and even Sinatra, I also uh, like the title of this song. And in terms of pop history, the title did give his name to that damn imposter from the punk era who had hits with songs like, Is She Really Going Out With Him? This is the original Jiving Joe Jackson. Jiving Joe Jackson is the attraction. You should hear him jiving on the key. Jiving Joe Jackson by the wonderful Anne Moore. Next week, we look at 1952, when all the final elements are put in place for the rock and roll revolution of the 1950s. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. I thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews series from the Joe Jackson Archive. Don't forget, if you want to read some of my articles, you can get them at joejacksoninterviewer.com.